Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. That was beautiful. Good morning. My name is Brad. I'm one of the pastors. Let's get to it. Ephesians chapter 4 is where we find ourselves this morning. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to find it. We're going to work through the first 16 verses of Ephesians 4. If you don't have a Bible, as always, I would encourage you to use one of the Bibles in the chair rack in front of you, and you can find Ephesians 4 on either page 766 or 977 if you're not familiar with looking up passages in the Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, as we always say, you're welcome to keep that Bible as your own, as our gift to you. We'd love for you to take that and read it and come back and and join us in worship in the weeks to come. We have been taking a bit of a break of working through a book of the Bible by, in this month in January, looking at this idea of the effect that the gospel should have on our culture as a church. So last week we looked at how the gospel disrupts, and we looked at this really incredible scene in Acts chapter 19 where the gospel comes in and turns this town upside down, and it should have that same effect in our hearts and in the life of a church and in, in and through us as we engage a, a lost world. Today, I want us to look at how the local church portrays, displays the gospel and portrays the beauty of Christ through their life together. And then in a couple weeks after we get through this gospel culture series, we're going to get back into the book of Genesis that we stopped off on chapter 27 back in midway through 2014. We're going to pick back up in Genesis 28 and be in it through the spring. So here is a faulty premise that I think most of us growing up in sort of American church culture, or just even if you didn't grow up in church, you you may have this sort of thought. And I think it's a default thought that many of us have, and I I think it's faulty. And that is that a church either is good at being evangelistic, being a witness for God, or they're good at discipleship, at edifying one another. And there seems to be this notion that these two things are kind of against one another. If a church is really good at being a witness or being evangelistic or winning people to the Lord, then they're good at that, but they're terrible at discipleship. And then there's this thought that if a church is going to be really good at growing together in the Lord and good at discipleship and good at encouraging one another, good at living in a way that edifies those people who are already Christians, they're somehow going to be sort of closed off and not good at Evangelism, and that that may be true. Church, that may description may fit certain churches, but I think that the Bible knows nothing of this sort of false dichotomy when it speaks about the local church. In fact, I think that these two things go together, and that the life of the local church. Here's my argument today: the life of the local church, when lived out centered on the gospel, when the gospel has disrupted our lives and caused us to turn away from our idols and turn in faith and trust towards Jesus and what he did on the cross and to live together in humble community, that our life together as a local church simultaneously grows and edifies and disciples those who are already believers no matter how long they've been in the faith 
And it also is a beautiful witness and aroma to an onlooking world that God in his sovereign grace uses to draw people to faith in him. So here's this picture I want you to have in your mind. Think of a dark, foreign, evil land. And think of an embassy, an outpost that is a representative of a faraway kingdom. It's a good and gracious and holy and righteous kingdom. And this embassy, this outpost of that faraway, righteous and good and holy kingdom has established a beachhead in this dark and evil land. And they, the citizens of this faraway kingdom, live in this little outpost, this embassy, but they live life and go about their business rubbing shoulders with citizens of the dark and evil kingdom. And the local church is intended to be an outpost, a representative of the kingdom that is coming, the faraway righteous and good and holy kingdom that is coming, has come, and will finally and fully be established on that day when Jesus comes back. And the local church, in fact, it's not just one embassy, but it's little outposts scattered throughout this dark and evil kingdom. The local church and the citizens of the body of Christ, the local church, are to be winsome, joyful witnesses to life in this kingdom that is coming. And that's what our life together as a local church should be. That's my argument. And we're going to use Ephesians chapter 4 in this beautiful description of the local church as our guide. So let's, let me pray and let me read Ephesians 4 now. I have an outline, but I'm going to give it to you as we go through. Okay, so we're going to just let it sort of unfold. I know that makes you nervous. There are only three points. So when we get to two and it feels a little long, you know there will just be one more. Okay? But we're going to read and stop and read and stop and go. So let me pray before I read in Ephesians 1. And after we look at this text, as is our custom, one Sunday a month, we are going to receive communion together as a congregation. If you are a member of Crosspoint... Or if you are not a member and you're visiting and you are a believer in Jesus, you are trusting in Christ, you are welcome to come to this table this morning with us to remember Jesus' work on the cross. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus, we are very grateful that you're here, but this meal that we're going to take together as a local church, as an assembly of believers in Jesus is a meal where we are remembering what Christ has done on the cross, and we are saying to ourselves, to one another, and to an onlooking world that we are trusting in Christ, and we are remembering what he did for us. And so it wouldn't be appropriate for you to do that if you don't yet trust in Christ. And so we're not trying to exclude you in any way. We're trying to just be clear about what the gospel is. And so you shouldn't come to this table. There's no shame in that. There's no embarrassment. You can just stay in your seats as people are receiving the elements. But we're going to move towards that as we work through this text. Well, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us. Father, the scriptures say in Psalm 19 that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, 
rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey, even the drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, in keeping them, your servant is warned, and there is great reward. Lord, as we look at your word today, and as we get a picture of what it means to be a local church together, and as we see the beauty of Jesus, I pray that you would help us see that life in him with your people is so much more satisfying than life outside of your kingdom, and that there is great reward, great joy, great lasting satisfaction in Christ. I pray that you would encourage and convict and grow your people this morning. And I pray for those that are gathered with us today that are not yet trusting in Christ, that they would, by your sovereign grace, turn from their sin, turn from their idols, turn from trusting in their own righteousness or morality, and would turn in faith to Jesus. And I pray that you'd do this for the glory of your name and for the good of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, let's read Ephesians 4, verse 1. Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So let me just stop there and remember, we've talked a lot about this over the years at Crosspoint, is that Paul has this pattern in his writings where when he writes a letter to a church, he will establish the good news of what God has done in Christ Jesus, and then from that flows God's imperative, God's command of how we should live for God in light of what Christ has already done. So this pattern that we see in the scriptures, and I think it's a important pattern for Christians to see as they read the scriptures, it's a gospel pattern, is that the gospel is an announcement of what God has done, past tense, through Jesus on the cross, to reconcile the people to himself, and in light of what Jesus has done, now this is what you must do. Now that is really important to get that order right, because sometimes we invert that order, and we preached that the message of the gospel or the good news of the Bible, which I think is actually bad news if you preach it this way, is that this is what you have to do to make yourself right with God. And if you do that, then God will be pleased with you. When that's not the message of the gospel at all, the message is, is that this is what God has done. He's caused you to go from death to life. He's made you alive. He's given you faith so that you can turn from your sin. He's done that. Now he's given you a new heart to beat for himself. Now you can walk in this way that pleases him. And so Paul's in this pattern in Ephesians 4, as he's established the gospel in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3. So he's urging us to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, verse 2, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, 
just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. So the first thing that I want us to see is we'll pause there as we're working through these verses, is that I want us to see that He has called us. God has called us by the gospel, given us life in Jesus, made us alive, as he says in Ephesians 2, given us the gift of faith and repentance so that we can trust in him. And now, because he's given us his Holy Spirit and his righteousness, we now can live in a way that glorifies God. So how has he called us? What has he called us to? A few things that we see in these six verses. First, he's called us to be holy as a church together. Now, of course, we're always going to struggle with this. There's always sin in our own lives remaining. There's always uh, sin in the church. There's always hypocrisy in everybody's life. But God, because of what he's done in Christ, has called us to be holy. Look again at verses 1 and 2. He says, Therefore, as a prisoner of the Lord, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And to do this with all humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. And God is, just like in the Old Testament with Israel, how he was trying to sanctify and fashion a people that would be a display of his glory to the onlooking nations. He's doing the same with the church in the New Testament. And so he's calling us not to a religious, uh, strict No joy, joyless existence, but he's calling us to a holy joy, to live together in a certain way, to put us on display to an onlooking world that needs to see a picture of what it means to follow Jesus. And he gives us, Paul gives us some encouragements on how to do that. We should do that with with humility. Paul writes this, we won't put it up on the screen, but just later on, read Philippians 2, where Paul encourages us to do nothing out of selfish ambition but to consider others better than ourselves. What would a church look like if they just grabbed a hold of this idea of pervasive humility? He tells us to be gentle with one another. Galatians 6, verse 1 and 2. I think sometimes we think of gentleness as a sort of of softness, but I think actually gentleness, a, a biblical gentleness, is a strength in reserve that cares for one another. Listen to what Paul writes in Galatians 6, 1 and 2. It's a gentle, fierce strength where we care for one another, even if a person in our church is caught in some transgression that is pulling them away from God. Paul writes this. He says, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. It's this fierce love for one another that expresses itself in humble gentleness to care for one another. Paul says that the local church, as they pursue holiness, should be, should be patient. One definition of this word patient is long-suffering towards aggravating people. <laughs> okay, good. You got it. So I'm assuming you understand what aggravating, some of you may be aggravating at times. I know I'm aggravating. Ask the five people that live with me. There's this patience that should grip us as a result of how the gospels disrupted us and seized our hearts. 
I wrote myself a note, and I, I don't think it's helpful for pastors to sort of, you know, be too, like, cathartic, like I'm just trying to do therapy on myself in front of you guys. But I, I do think about this idea of patience and how uh, the Lord just convicted me as I was preparing this week and reading the scripture and thinking about patience in the local church and patience in my own heart. And I realize how I am often not long-suffering. In my home, in the church, I think publicly you maybe see me as being patient and kind and humble, but sometimes that's just a sort of mask. So I wrote myself this little note, and it says, I have often failed in this area. I can give the appearance of humility, but inside I simmer with frustration and impatience. And this has caused me to be a less effective, less free, and often too anxious husband, father, leader, and pastor. Although it may not be noticeable to the eyes of the people outside of my home, I believe it has stunted my leadership as a man and as a pastor, and, and has, has in some ways hurt my ability to lead the church, and it's inhibited the church. And for that, I had to spend some time this week repenting to God, and, and now repenting to you. Oh, that God would make us patient people. I find when I'm, I, when I'm impatient, it's often because I have let some faulty notion of success or my own little view or idol of how I want things to go to dominate rather than God's long-suffering patience for me than extended to others. Listen to what William Still, who is a Scottish, he was, passed away, Scottish pastor back in the mid-1900s wrote, he has a classic little book called The Work of a Pastor. And if you are a, you're a young man aspiring to pastoral ministry, I cannot commend this book to you enough. He speaks about this idea of living together in humble, gentle patience. He says, Next to the ministry of the word, the most fruitful pastoral duty is to help all sorts of odd sheep to live together and show them how to live in the world amongst goats without becoming goats. That's true. The testimony of a true Christian church ought to be how Christians love one another, including the Odd bods. I guess that's Scottish for weirdos. Christ likes odd bods. Praise God. I sometimes say that nearly all the fruitful Christian ministers and fruitful laymen I know are odd bods, and I add a hearty amen to that. I'm an oddest bod I know. I'm such a weirdo. But they are odd bods with a mission. A mission to fit other odd bods along with themselves into a fellowship. That's a beautiful thought, isn't it? To fit people who are wrestling with humility and gentleness and patience together in this beautiful display of what it means to follow Jesus as an embassy in a foreign dark land to an onlooking world. And then he says that we should bear with one another in love. Let me read to you. Let's not believe that we should do this because William Still writes about odd bots. Let's read it and see it for ourselves in, in the scripture. I think we see it in Ephesians 4, but let's, let's go. We'll have it on the screen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I think this is such a beautiful passage for a local church. I, I wish that these words would, would seize us and that we would 
all desire to work this into our life together as a congregation. Listen to 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 12, and note that this instruction by Paul is written not just to the elders, pastors, leaders of the church, but it's written to the whole congregation. He says, we ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Listen to verse 14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Remember, that's written to every Christian. So it's not just, oh, well, there's somebody that needs a talking to. Maybe one of the church leaders will do it. But we urge you, all of you brothers and sisters, admonish the idle, recognizing that at times we may be idle and we need the admonishment of other people that we've given the authority to do that in our lives. And that's what life in the local church does, to be known and to give authority to a group of people to help you live this Christian life as you pursue holiness, to encourage people who are faint-hearted to help the weak and be patient with all. Oh, what a beautiful picture of what life should look together like in the local church as we collectively pursue holiness to be a display of who Jesus is to an onlooking world. So he's called us to be holy. He's also called us, secondly, to be one. You see in verse 3 that Paul says all of these things, so that we would be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. As we think about this idea of oneness, I think one of the most beautiful things about the local church is, is there are, and I see this in Crosspoint, I'm so encouraged by it, there are people from every different economic uh, group, there's people from different ethnicities, there's people from different countries, And this becomes a beautiful display, not just of diversity for diversity's sake, but what does it display to an onlooking world when the citizens of this faraway kingdom are from every tribe and tongue and nation? It says to an onlooking world that there's something so much stronger than anything within us that binds us together. In other words, what what knits us together as a people isn't encapsulated in a sort of earthly experience, whether it's the same you know, culture or same demographic or same neighborhood or same taste. No, there's something that has knit us together. There's something outside of us that has made us one and we're people from all different walks of life and it commends the beauty of Jesus who alone can bring people from opposite ends of the spectrum together. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians 2. Verses 14 and 15. And he's speaking about what the gospel does to different types of people. In this case, the Jew and the Gentile who hated each other. He says in Ephesians 2 verse 14 and 15, For he himself is our peace, meaning Jesus, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might, listen to this, that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace. So we are, we're united together. We are one. We are in Christ. We are part of Christ's body, and he is the head. We are united, and that becomes a beautiful picture to an onlooking world. 
That doesn't mean that we're not going to disagree with one another. We'll do that all the time. But even the way that we handle disagreements or grievances, we'll commend the unity and the beauty of Jesus as we resist gossip, as we resist unfairly judging one another, as we resist putting one another down, and we value to and we eagerly maintain the unity that we have in Christ, it becomes a countercultural display. It becomes a light amongst darkness to an onlooking world where people are always at each other's throats. I mean, come on, just watch news. Just watch, just everything is just, ugh. It's just a big gotcha game of who's messed up. I mean, we can't even sort through just getting facts anymore because everybody's just at each other's throats. And as a counter to that, the life of the local church should be a beautiful display of the peace that Jesus brings through the cross. So he calls us to be holy. He calls us to be one. And clearly, friends, he calls us not because we're good, but by the miraculous saving grace of the gospel. He calls us by the gospel. Verses 4 through 6. Again, let me read it. There's one body and one spirit, just as you were called. So what does that mean to be called? It means that we were dead in our sins. Listen closely. This, friends, is the heart of the gospel. This is the good news. The Bible is clear that we, because of our rebellion, like our first parents, Adam and Eve, have all turned away from God. And our rebellion against God, whether it is obvious and public, or whether it is internal, self-righteous moralism, that we are all born in sin. And we all rebel against God. And this sin, because God is infinitely holy, deserves infinite punishment. And it has separated us from God. And we are born separated from God. The Bible calls that being dead in your sins. And dead people cannot do anything to make themselves alive. They're dead. And so we need God to do something, to intervene. And that's what he does in the gospel. He calls. He opens up. He gives us life so that we can have faith in what God the Father did through God the Son on the cross to reconcile people to himself because God is holy and we are fallen and we can't do anything to make ourselves right with God. And so God comes to us in the form of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, fully God, yet fully man, takes on flesh, lives a perfect life. Where we have rebelled, he completely obeys. And then he lays down his perfect life on the cross to absorb the holy, righteous punishment and wrath of God the Father that should have been ours. And because he's God and because he's a perfect man, he can handle it. He absorbs it. He satisfies it. He extinguishes it and then rises again in victory over sin, the death, and the grave and all of its consequences and now commands us all to turn from trusting in ourselves and trust in him. Friends, that's the good news. And we can't see that in and of ourselves. We need God to call us. We need him to open our eyes, to give us a new heart and ears to hear. And that's what God does when he makes a person a Christian. He gives them life so that then they can have faith and believe in Jesus. Listen to what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6. He says, For God, who said... Let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. 
What's Paul doing there? He is equating salvation to the work of creation. So the message of the gospel is not recreate yourself. That would be as absurd as speaking to nothing and say, make something. Before Genesis 1, it's not like there was a whole bunch of neutral particles sort of out there who got together and decided to, to hit each other that then formed this universe. No, there was nothing and then there was something. God spoke and there was light. And Paul is using that picture of creation in Genesis 1 to be a picture of how any person that's ever trusted in Christ who's ever trusted in Christ has been called. There was nothing, there was no faith, there was no life. We were dead in our sins. God spoke, light hit our heart, and we became alive. Friends, incidentally, that's why it's so important that we preach the gospel every Sunday and that you know the gospel if you're a Christian so you can share it with your friends because God doesn't bring people to life by giving them good tips on how to handle Tuesday. He brings them to life by the creative power of his word, the gospel, and giving us life so that we can now look to Jesus. So the message of the gospel is not have a bunch of faith and then maybe God will be pleased. The message of the gospel is you're dead in your sin. and He must make you alive and give you faith so that you can trust in him. Admittedly, that's offensive to a man-centered world. But when we see that, it truly becomes grace. And if you are truly hearing that for the first time today and seeing it, well, friends, rejoice. Because I believe that's evidence that God in his sweet kindness, is maybe for the first time opening your eyes to see and giving you a heart to believe who Jesus is. You need to not do anything and muster something deep within yourself like a Whitney Houston song. You need to simply look at Jesus and believe in him. And you can do that if you're hearing these words because God has given you the very thing he requires of you, which is faith. So God calls us to be holy, he calls us to be one, and he calls us by the gospel. Well, let's keep going, verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. And we're going to look at that grace now. He transitions here in verse 7. And the grace that Paul is speaking here of in verse 7 is not saving grace that he gives to people when he intends to save, save them. But now a transition is made that Paul is saying that then to every believer that he has made alive by the gospel, he now gives a gift, grace. He gives, he gives gifts, spiritual gifts to them so that they can help the church grow in holiness and unity. And we're going to read about that. So, but, but grace, verse 7, was given to each one of us. Grace or gifts was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Verse 8, therefore it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. Okay, let me stop there. I realize that may be confusing language if you're hearing that for the first time. What's happening there is Paul is actually quoting Psalm 68, where the psalmist, hundreds of years before, 
is writing this song prophetically looking forward to the ministry of Jesus. And so when he talks about descending into the lower regions, the earth, what Paul is referring to there is Jesus in his incarnation. I don't think it means, incidentally, if you're interested in this, that Jesus descended into hell after his death, uh, in between his death and resurrection. I think that Paul is referring here to the incarnation of Jesus humbling himself and taking on flesh. And so he descended to earth in his incarnation and in his life on earth. The God become, God become man. And then he ascended after his resurrection. And because he has ascended, he is the victorious king who can give gifts. So this imagery is like a conquering king who's, who's plundered a foreign kingdom. And it would be customary for the, for the conquering victorious king to come back to his kingdom and hand out, you know, the gifts, all of the plunder. And that's the picture here, is that Jesus has come to the earth, and he has defeated death on the cross through his life, death, burial, and resurrection, and now is ascending as the king seated on high, and is giving gifts to his church, to each one of them. So let's continue, verse 11. And these are the gifts that he has given. He's given, as we read in verse 7, each individual person that's a Christian spiritual gifts In verse 11, it says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So, secondly, we looked at first, he's called us. Secondly, this little block of passage of verses tells us that he has gifted us as a church to live together in this way. He's gifted us each individually. He's given each person in this room that's a Christian gifts so that we can use these gifts to bless our life together as a local church so that we can be a clear, more holy, more united, beautiful display of what it means to be in Christ to an onlooking world. So that makes us ask the question, how do you know how you've been gifted or what your particular set of gifts may be? I think that's a valid question that we should always be asking ourselves in the local church. One approach is, this become, I think, popular and, and has some validity, is the method of, of maybe a self-analytical questionnaire that, that you ask yourself a bunch of questions and it tries to match you up with an inventory of potential passions and gifts and desires. While I think, I think that, that can be commendable, I think it's, it, it, that approach has its drawbacks. For one, I think that the discovery of our spiritual gift is something that I think needs to be worked out in sort of community. Because, you know, whenever you're answering a sort of questionnaire as an individual, whatever it is, aren't you sort of prone to sort of, sort of misanalyze yourself? Like sometimes I'm, I'm either like, you know, it's like political questionnaires. You know, you're wanting to be more, gen- well, of course I would help the man on the street. Well, maybe I just walk by him, you know, but I'm not going to tell the pollster that I'm really a jerk, you know. And so I think there's a little bit of that sort of individual sort of blindness that can happen when we're sort of just trying to analyze ourselves. Um, I think a better way for individual Christians to think about what their gifts are is to live in 
close Christian community and to intentionally think about what their gifts may be, to be familiar with the New Testament. And the New Testament gives us several lists of gifts. I certainly don't think they're exhaustive at all. I think that there are many more. Paul just mentions a few in places like 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans chapter 12, 1 Peter 4, here in Ephesians 4. And so I think life together in the local church, we should be thinking about, and we should be speaking words of encouragement to one another. When we see a person is good at gifted in some particular thing, we should say, hey, brother or sister, you might think about doing that because you're good at that. And so I think that's a healthy sort of organic way for us to think about our individual gifts. So he gives us individually, but he also gives us as a church with particular people who fulfill particular roles and our gifts to the church in what they do. So we see there that he gives, he lists five, apostles and prophets. Now let me say that I think these two particular roles in the church have ceased. What Paul is saying is that there were these apostles who were the 12 disciples of Jesus, plus a few more, Paul who became an apostle later on, and then Jesus' half-brothers who had special authority, like the Old Testament prophets, to speak God's word, which became God's written word. And so if anybody tells you that they're an apostle or a prophet, don't just walk, run to another church. Um, The apostles and prophets have all died. Now granted in the New Testament, there are times when Paul uses these words apostle and prophecy to speak about things that that are true of all Christians that we are all, in a sense, apostles or sent ones from Jesus to the world, and that there is this, I believe, New Testament gift of prophecy that I do think some people will have, and it's not this strange, mystical gift of telling the future. It's not like Christian Nostradamuses. It's more of this sense that God gives particular people a power and clarity to speak God's worth in, uh, word and truth and bring it to bear in God's people to bring about fruit and conviction. Certainly that happens in the church. But what Paul is referring to here is not that the offices of apostles and prophets have ceased. And he gives evangelists, people that are gifted in building up the church and their ministry and speaking the gospel to an onlooking world and pastors and teachers. Not all teachers in the church are necessarily pastors, but all pastors do and should be able to teach. And God gives these people as gifts to the church along with how he's gifted each individual Christian so that we can together grow up in unity in Christ and maturity so that we're not tossed to and fro by sin or by every contrary philosophy that beats against the gospel and our life together in Christ. I see examples of this in our church, and I'm so encouraged of it. Let me just, for a moment, just sort of uh, brag on the, the leaders of this church. I see Reynolds and Doug over the years meeting with young men, just not, they're not assigned to do it, they're just doing it, encouraging them, setting before them an example of what it means to be a man. And then I hear about often, in fact, just this week, about the men, some of the men that they've been meeting with that are now doing that themselves, just organically, meet, organically meeting with other men to encourage them. A couple months ago, Wayne did a wonderful teaching on uh, how we as Christians can be equipped to 
refute and counter the air of some common cults in our culture. And one of a sister in our church uh, used a lot of that information to help equip her to be a witness to a Jehovah's Witness person that came and knocked on our door and has has been witnessing to this young lady for, for months. And so a pastor helped to equip, and this person then is now doing the work of the ministry and work of evangelism to this, to this person. In fact, tonight at the member meeting, come, and this sister will be sharing just a, a testimony about how God has moved her to witness to this person. It's not some triumphalistic you know, testimony about how this girl became a Christian Saturday morning. It's just an encouragement to the church of what it means to be a witness for Christ. I see Will empowering a team of leaders, not so that Will has to be the one guy that talks to every kid, but there's a young man who's on Will's leadership team who is, is, is always looking for ways that he can bless and encourage, pick kids up to come to youth group, and is just organically being a sort of under-shepherd himself. I see Springer organizing numerous mission trips, not actually going on them all to lead them, but empowering people in the body, delegating leadership so that others lead the team. In fact, this week in Haiti, uh, we got two brothers that are going to do their, not the first time they're out of the country, but it's the first time they'll be leading a trip. So praise God for that. And I see uh, Robert just these past few months. I've been so encouraged. There was a brother in our congregation who was caught in a very deep and dark place because of his own actions. And Robert met with his brother over months to help to shepherd his soul towards repentance and restoration. And the fruit of that has been beautiful. God gives these people, pastors and teachers, as gifts to the congregation. And I'm so thankful how, how really kind you are to us and how encouraging you are to us as shepherds. So he gifts us. And then let's finish with verses 15 and 16. Paul writes, then, we're not tossed away by, to and fro by every wind of doctrine, but we grow up in a way. And then verse 15, rather, speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So the third and final point is that he's called us, he's gifted us, and he's done all this to display the beauty of Christ to an onlooking world, to make us as a congregation a people that will be a, not a perfect, but a very much in process display to an onlooking world. Before we end, let me just consider with us a few ways which we may at times hinder the display of Christ. Very quick. I realize this Maybe a bit convicting, but I'm your pastor and I love you and I feel an obligation to exhort you in these ways. A few ways that we potentially hinder the display of Christ in the local church. One, by being a Christian for a long period of time and not joining a local church. Now, if you're a visitor here today, we're not beating you over the head trying to think you should join this church. Go find a church where the gospel's preached. Maybe it's this one and commit yourself to it. But maybe you've been here for a long time and you are calling yourself a Christian and you have not gone through the membership process that hinders our ability as a church to care for you. Not, friends, not, hear my heart in this, not because we want a large role in numbers so that we can report to some denomination how many members we have. Nothing could be further from the truth. But because we see in the scriptures a biblical responsibility as shepherds and elders to care for and know 
and to serve and to keep accountable the people that God has entrusted to us. Hebrews 13 verse 17 says that we should know our leaders and submit to them for they are those who keep watch over your soul as those who will have to give an account. That's why James says that not many of you should be teachers because you will come under a stricter judgment. We're going to have to stand before God, the pastors, elders of this church, and not just give an account for our own lives and how we led our families, but for everybody that is a member of this church. And when do we know whether or not we're responsible for you? Just because you walked in the doors? Just because you've been coming for two or three months? Or is it four months? Or is it five months? No, no, it's five and a half months. No, friends, we know who we are responsible to as pastors, who we have to care for and stand before God someday By the process, we call it church membership. You won't find those words in the Bible, but I think you see the concept implied in the Bible. We see in 1 Corinthians 5, a brother who is in an illicit, immoral relationship with his father's wife. Don't ask me to explain that. It's obviously his stepmom in some sort of crazy sort of way. And he is in an immoral relationship with her, and the church was tolerating it. And Paul is writing to the church in 1 Corinthians 5, and he's saying, put this brother out because he is, he is damaging your witness as a church to, to the onlooking world. Well, how do you put somebody out of something if there's no end to something? What's the mechanism by which you could tell this brother, you're no longer part of us? I think it's the implication of this commitment that Christians should have to one another in the local church. And so if you're a Christian and you've been coming here for a long time and you have not yet met with the elders, gone through our membership process to encourage your soul, to help us sit down with you and hear how you became a Christian and your understanding of the gospel, I think you're hindering the work of God in your life. I do. I realize that may cause some of you to get your back up. And on this one, my email is brad at insidecrosspoint.com. All right, I'm not just being silly and giving you somebody else. Email me, and I want to sit down and talk to you because I think you're hindering your soul by being unconnected to the local church. Listen, if you're a visitor today, I'm not beating you up. I'm not saying you should join this church. I'm saying you should join a church eventually if you're a Christian. If you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian, first order of business is for you to hear the gospel, turn from your sin, and trust in Christ. Another way that we hinder the life of the local church, the witness of the local church, is not, by not prioritize gathering. Look, we're inundated with information and stuff and things that draw us away. And again, I realize this just sounds like the pastor beating people up. This is, no, this is just an encouragement. This is, I think, good exhortation from the scripture. But when we maybe don't prioritize gathering with the local church. It starts to weaken our soul. Thirdly, by not participating in the life of the local church in some way, being connected with other believers beyond the Sunday morning gathering. If you're not connected to a community group, I encourage you to find one. Come to our Sunday morning classes. Come to the next midweek fellowship we'll have in a few weeks and get to know other Christians. Get to know other oddbods, people who are inconvenient for you to be around. Are you only around people that are convenient for you to be around? That's not good for your soul. It feels more comfortable, but it's like eating Snickers all day long. It's not good for you. Fourth, a way we hinder the display of the local church is by not serving in some way. Whatever that may be. 
by not using your gifts, by not thinking about how you have been gifted by God to not selfishly serve the local church so that you can be just a group of, you know, you know, group of people that are in a bunker away from culture. No, that so that you can help the church become more holy so that the church can be a better display of what it means to follow Jesus to an onlooking world that needs to see that. And then finally, a way that we hinder the display of the local church, the beauty of Christ in the local church, and I think this applies to a lot of people in our culture, is by nursing, lingering, and disappointment. Maybe you had a bad experience in a church before. Or maybe you had a bad experience in this church. And you're still here, but you kind of got everybody at an arm's length. And now, might I say to you, dear friend, unfortunately, the loudest thing about you has become your past pain. At some point, gently, pastorally, I say to you, you need to get over it for the sake of your soul and the glory of God. Don't let the defining moment of your life as a Christian on earth be that church split that you endured years ago or be that bad word that was spoken about you in this church. Be a Christian in community that bears with others in love with a bunch of other odd bods for the glory of God and for the good of your soul. Listen to this quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer, then we're going to wrap this puppy up and take communion. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a German pastor during World War II, a hero of mine. Don't necessarily agree with all of his theology, but he was a wonderful example of fierce courage in the face of tremendous evil. He had a position as a seminary professor in the United States in the 1920s and 30s, knew that the Third Reich was developing. He saw the storm clouds on the horizon, willingly went back to his native Germany to start an underground movement of true Christians and to stand against the Third Reich and encourage Christians. For that, he was thrown into prison and two weeks before the end of World War II was hung by Hitler's Third Reich, martyred for the faith. And in prison, he wrote... Many letters and books, one called Life Together about Christians and community. Listen to what Bonhoeffer says about Christian community and disappointment. Innumerable times a whole Christian community has broken down because it had sprung from a wish dream. The serious Christian, set down for the first time in a Christian community, is likely to bring with him a very definite idea of what Christian life together should be and to try to realize it. But God's grace speedily shatters such dreams. Just as surely as God desires to lead us to a knowledge of genuine Christian fellowship, so surely must we be overwhelmed by a great disillusionment with others, with Christians in general, and if we are fortunate, with ourselves. By sheer grace. By sheer grace, God will not permit us to live even for a brief period of time in a dream world. Only that fellowship which faces such disillusionment with all its unhappy and ugly aspects begins to be what it should be in God's sight. Begins to grasp in faith the promise that is given to it. Not this pie in the sky wish dream where everybody's beautiful and well-adjusted and happy, but where people are broken and ugly and mean and fearful and anxious, but rescued by Jesus, struggling together with a bunch of other odd bods to display the glory of Christ 
to an onlooking world that needs the aroma of Christ. And friends, that's what the local church should be. That's what our dusty, hard, rigorous life together as a local church should be. It should be an aroma of Christ to an onlooking world, a hungry, tired, weary, beaten down world that needs a whiff of the gospel to draw them in so that they true can for once be saved and eat and be satisfied. Yesterday, my oldest son and I were in this place called Phoenix City, Alabama. And we were at my favorite restaurant in the area, Ed's Country Cooking and Barbecue. Usually Italian food is my favorite because of my heritage on my dad's side. But there is not finer southern comfort food in America than at Ed's Country Cooking and Barbecue. And Joseph and I got out of my truck, well, his truck now. I was driving, though. And there was just wafts of the smell of barbecue even outside in the parking lot. It was this aroma of food. And we went in and enjoyed. (laughs) Friends, that's the life of the local church. The aroma of Christ, even in its ruggedness, even in its disillusionment, even as we wrestle with disappointment, to a hungry, tired, wearied world where we say to them by our life together, because we're on an outpost in a foreign land, come in, come in and eat this food that is free, that truly will satisfy. Let's pray. Ushers, if you would come down and prepare to service as we receive communion together. Lord, how can we do this? How can we do this? How can we live like this? Only by grace. Not because we're good, not because we're wise, not because we're strong, but because we are odd bods, completely unfit, completely unworthy, struggling with disillusionment, struggling with disappointment, struggling with selfishness, struggling with with discouragement, struggling with anxiety. But God, there's something so true about those of us in this room that are trusting in Christ is that we have been redeemed, we've been made alive, and now our role in the rest of our life is to live together in a way that displays the surpassing worth of Jesus to an onlooking world. God, make us this type of church, I pray, in increasing measure. Encourage and convict your people that are in this room. And God, I pray that you would shine the light of the gospel to those that came into this room unbelieving so that they true can they too can be part of this merry band of oddbods for the glory of God and the joy of our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.